You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. You deserve time off. Your money doesn't. Learn how to make your money work just as hard as you do at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being with me today. It's Jean Chatsky, and this is Her Money. And I am, well, I'm thrilled, actually, to tell you that Vicki Robin is in the studio with me today. She's not in Seattle or near Seattle, where she usually is. She is on the road. She's in New York. And for those of you who don't know Vicki, she has made such a difference in the way millions of people over the last couple of decades have decided, which is a very important word, have decided to live their financial lives and have decided how to manage their time. Vicki and her late partner, Joe Dominguez, who wrote a really seminal book called Your Money or Your Life, challenged a whole generation to think about what they were really working for and how they were living, whether they were doing it authentically or just trying to keep up. And the two of them together are really credited with sowing some of the seeds of the FIRE movement as it is today. Vicki, of course, though, did not stop with her first book. She's written others, including Blessing the Hand That Feeds Us, Lessons from a 10-Mile Diet, where she explores food and farming and sustainability. She's got a popular TED Talk. She's had quite the journey, and she is here to fill us in on all of it. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Jean. So nice to have you here and in person. And I don't want to get stuck in the past, but I do want to just give my audience who may not know of your amazing work a little taste of where it started. Can you just give us a little bit about how you got on this journey to begin with? Well, I wrote Your Money or Your Life with Joe Dominguez, who had developed in the 1960s a strategy for his own early financial independence because he looked at it like military service. You do your financial service. He wanted to be out by the time he was 30. And he did it in a very, very, very traditional way that we have completely forgotten or overridden in this society. He earned as much as he could without violating his integrity or his health. He saved as much as he could without, like, driving himself into, you know, sort of like unhealthy penury. And he invested the money in the most secure way he could so that he could throw off an income. And he kept track of every penny that came into and out of his life. And so he carefully, carefully examined every expense and said, is this expenditure buying me the life I love? Is it in line with my values? Does it make me happy? That's his system. It's like as simple as it could be. He used to say Ben Franklin's rolling over in his grave. And doing that, he had determined how much is enough. And once he had crossed over that point where he had income from his savings equal to his enoughness. The amount amount he needed to live. The amount he needed to live, not like, like scrimping and saving, but to have everything he wanted and needed, but nothing in excess. 
and I can get into how I've applied this. Yeah, then he was financially independent. So I met him along the way, and I thought, this is the most genius thing I've heard about money ever. I applied it to my own little savings that I had. I was able to live on the interest income from my savings enough so that I had the freedom to learn and grow and explore, learn things that I wanted to learn. A lot of it has to do with back-to-the-land sustainability skills. A lot of it has to do with, you know, just understanding myself and my own life and my own psychology and, and being a good person and helping others out, you know, the whole Girl Scout, Boy Scout thing. Uh, and um, eventually people were really interested in, like, what is this about? Joe did some living room talks with friends, and, and eventually I became the producer because I said, this is really important. Mm -hmm. And for, for a decade, we produced seminars based on Joe's approach. Then, in the end of the 80s, I went to a, a, the first national conference on something that was brand new at the time called sustainable development, which is now very corporatized. But at that time, it was a question coming out of the United Nations of we're expanding economically and population on a finite planet. We're on a collision course. We can see it now. We can see it on the horizon. We're going to use up our resources. Yeah, yeah. We're we're getting, and we're already already in the late '80s. We were in a condition called overshoot. We were using more of the bio capacity of the planet annually than would get regenerated through natural processes. So the crisis was already there, and we were just bringing it to consciousness. I go to this conference, and I realize that the everybody is saying the biggest driver of environmental destruction is overconsumption. But since that's the uh, signature, you know, we're a consumer culture. Right. It's right to consume. It's our right to consume. You know, like the, they're bombing us, buy a tie, you know, go <laughs> shopping. You know, it's like there's an insanity. It's a, it's, it's a, the consumerist insanity. And it was cultivated. If people understood the implications 20 years out of what was being sown, then they should be sued, like the Sackler family. Maybe they didn't. But anyway, um, we based our society on a false premise, but the program in your money, your life, when people applied our steps, their spending went down on average 20 to 25% because we surveyed people six months, a year later. And almost everybody said they were happier. So I'm there at this conference, and I think we have the solution to the biggest problem on the planet. And that's when I was like, we're going to do this. By the year 2000, we are going to be have moderated consumption sufficiently. We were going to like, you know, savings rate was going to be 20%. That's what we said. And we were working on some social science research that said, you know, if you can get 20% of the population thinking anything, then then the rest is history. You know, it'll yeah, just spread. it'll catch. It'll catch. So we were working on catching, you know. And we were on Oprah, and it became a New York Times bestseller, five years on the Business Week bestseller list. Um, you know, just all the lists, all the major shows, all the everything. And we kept counting up the audiences like, OK, we're going to get to we figured we'd gotten to 50 percent of the country. <laughs> and yet and, and, and yet, still no, no, the theory didn't work. Well, I don't know that the theory didn't work. I think the theory works for people who apply the theory. No, no. I said my social theory oh, yeah, about well, that we were going to stop the, the overconsumption. I heard I heard the savings rate at 20 percent. And I, I'm sure you could see me roll my eyes because what is it for? I, I mean, think that's generous. Yeah. That's I, really generous. It, it, we've been through periods in our recent history where the savings rate was negative. Exactly. Yeah, the end of the of the 90s, the year 2000, I took a look at all the data and I thought, 
You know, I gave a decade. I would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to talk to drive time on the East Coast. You know, I just did everything I knew how to do to to sort of, you know, pin, put a, like lots of little pins in these soap bubbles of ideas that I'm going to be, if I get, you know, if I get a new car, a new house, a new wife, a new dog, if I get, you know, I don't feel happy, but I'm going to consume and then I'll be happier. And this completely unconscious process that if it didn't produce happiness, but it had no ill effects, well, okay, fine, you know, but it does. There's, there's a remainder from all of this activity. Yeah. Let's look inward at individuals for a second, because I do think the people who found your book then have found it for the last couple of decades, have happened on the fire movement now, yes. are saying there's something there. We've done a number of shows with fire proponents. And I've seen it in my own life when you talk about tracking the spending, following the money. I've, I've done a number of money makeovers with individuals over the years. I've seen that happiness light bulb go off when they feel more in control. So how, where are we right now as far as the culture of consumerism? And what kind of changes can people make in order to get to that happiness? Mm. Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, number one, yes, I think it is the experience of going from being out of control, frightened, behind an eight ball, and you don't know even what game the ball belongs to, that feeling of being utterly out of control and then finding this sort of life ring, whether it's your money or your life or, or something in the fire movement, you find something that's defined. It says, if you do these steps, you will get here. Just trust us and do it. You know, and, and all the formulas and all the math of it, it's very clear. And it feels like an awakening, like somebody just sent me yeah. a life ring off of, you know, in a vast sea and I'm being reeled in. So there's a happiness that comes from that. I think there's another happiness with your money, your life. We suggest that people ask themselves of purchases, is this making me happy, commensurate with the number of hours of my life I invested to get the money to get this thing? And so it introduces the question of, is this whatever making me happy rather than the, the presumption that, of course, I'll be happier if I get that dress? you know, without actually observing yourself or your real behavior. So awareness itself, that feeling like you just sort of won the lottery or you just decoded something, that you're allowed to be conscious and make a decision to not purchase something when you're being driven to purchase it and everybody's purchased it, but you realize, I don't, that's not going to make me happy. I think I won't do that. It's like we're telling people to stop you know, some guy who's taking a block of wood and hitting himself over the head, just suggesting that he stop. I think that the connection between how much time did it take me to earn this money and buying that thing has vanished for so, so many people. I think people don't even stop to think about because spending is so fast and so immediate and swipe, swipe, swipe or click a button. I remember I've got two kids and I remember when my oldest babysat for the first time and the $10 an hour that he earned 
which was far more than the dollar an hour I earned when I was babysitting, but the $10 an hour that he earned, all of a sudden that was so much more valuable to him than his allowance that I gave him that was the same amount of money, but all of a sudden it was his time. And that calculation, I think, has just gone away. Yeah, right, right, because of because of credit cards and there's no shame in... You know, there's the, we have massive credit limits. As a matter of fact, the game is find people who are not going to, like, welch on their debt, but they're never going to pay their cards off. And that's a perfect cash cow for the banks, you know. So the people who keep, keep being given credit cards, they think, oh, I must be really good, you know. <laughs> and I have the 2000 limit on this card and 5000 on that. And, and I have that much money. People think they have that much money to spend. They don't calculate that. At some point in the future, they're going to have to pay that off at three times the original cost. They don't compute that. I think that part of the FIRE movement, part of your money, your life, too, has been this awakening that I there's a steering wheel here. There's a tiller. There's something that can steer. I can steer my boat through life by being conscious about money. I can take control. And I can get myself out of this drift toward ruin that I sort of in the back of my mind, I know that's what's going on, but I, nothing in society is making any effort to make me conscious of that because we are a consumer culture. People used to say back in the day, you know, <laughs> like, like, well, wait a second, aren't you going to ruin the economy? And I, I would say, look, I don't eat a high-fat diet so that my neighbor, the heart surgeon, can make money. <laughs> you know, why, why, you know, this economy is not loyal to you. It doesn't care about you at all. It's, it doesn't care about you. Why do you care about it? Vicki, I want to go back to that, but it seems like this is a good time to remind everyone that her money and conversations like these are proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We want you talking about your money, and we're here to remind you that you work way too hard to let your money just sit in savings. Whether you are new to the workforce, whether you are approaching retirement, Fidelity can help advise you throughout your career and beyond so that your money is working just as hard as you are. It all starts with a yearly financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. And from there, the folks at Fidelity can work with you to evaluate your investments, to determine ways to grow your savings, to keep you on track, to reach all of your various life goals. And you can start demanding more from your money today at fidelity.com slash demand more. We're so happy to be back with Vicki Robin. How do you get people to embrace the idea of enough? I consider myself so lucky that I did not go through high school in the era of Instagram. These poor kids who can't stand seeing themselves in the same outfit again, I mean, Give me a break, right? I'll wear the same outfit tomorrow if I like it as much as I did today and it doesn't smell. So how do we get ourselves to no seriously? Right. I mean I have I have I know. We're... How do we get ourselves to embrace enough and to know what's enough for us? Because it's it's different yeah, for yeah. everybody. I think it's a question of wanting something more than you want the stuff. I think it's a question of imagination of being able to introduce some questions of like, in five years' time, what would I like to be doing with my life? 
you know, like, what are 10 things that I would love to do before I die? You know, introducing the future into the present and thinking about the possibilities of pleasure or learning or experiencing or, like, one day I want to stand on top of Mount Everest. And if you say that and your whole body system believes that, you will do anything. You will change your diet. You will exercise. You will, you know, go to the gym. You'll be doing wall climb. You'll do everything because you've told your mind that this is the thing you want. So it's that we have not taken our gaze off of the constant stream of things to want. So I think rather than deprivation, what we need to work on is wanting something that requires more of us than the products. You know, I want, you know, you could say, I want to write a children's book and illustrate it. You wanted to be a stand-up comic. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So it's the wanting mechanism. And the wanting mechanism has been inhabited by the consumer culture. The very core, gut-level, desiring mechanism has been taken over by false stories about happiness and consumption. Because you know, we all know that we're happiest when we achieve something, not a purchase. But we said, I want to do a five-minute stand-up comedy routine or whatever. And you work hard and you you get over all your embarrassment and you do it. There's no better feeling. There's no better feeling than expending some of yourself to achieve something that you yourself says has value. That is is the best. And so there's part of this, this part, you know, our imagination has been taken, our storytelling capacity has been taken over by stories that are generated to have us consume things. It's an utter degradation of human consciousness. So I, I would say that the thing to really focus on, in, in, in addition to keeping track of your money, but you do the mechanics because you want something else. And for a lot of people in the fire movement, what they want is out. Is there a detox phase? Is there a phase that's painful to go through when you're weaning yourself off the stuff? You know, there may be for some people. Um, I, for myself, (laughs) I was like, I always thought I was sort of beating the system. I was, you know, beating the man, you know, like, I felt smart. I felt clever. I felt like, ha, 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 I didn't, you know, there was, a, there was a worm and I didn't bite it. Now I get to be free another day. I used to say I'm buying my freedom with my frugality every day. So for me, the game is, the cat and mouse game is you're trying to get me to buy stuff and I'm not going to do it. Unless I want to and then I will. I'm sovereign. I am sovereign, not you. I want to learn a little bit about where life has taken you. In the last decade, you've become a real social innovator within the sustainability movement, talking a lot about food, writing about food. Talk to us about that. It's all of a piece. I mean, it all goes back to this idea of that we're in a condition called overshoot, that we're using more of the planet every year than the planet has. For me, that was like my social conscience wake-up call is is I wanted to do what I could to interrupt that, you know, drive off the cliff. And then after, as I said, after I 
I realized in the year 2000 that none of the external data was was going in the direction I had hoped. The next thing that made a lot of sense to me was relocalization. Relocalization is just the idea of analyzing resource flows through your life. It's sort of a collective your money, your life. So, you know, it's food, water, clothes, cars, electronics. And you just say, where did this come from? Where does all these things that my life depends on come from? Where did the picture come from? Where's the glass come from? Where did the tablecloth come from? You know, all the things that come through my life that serve my life, it becomes curious about where are they sourced? Because you start to think, if this whole meta structure is not sustainable, if it's, if it's going to fracture by the weight of the demand on a system that can't support the level of demand, I'm going to think about what I need to have a happy life. Not just p- me personally, you know, dipping into the macro economy, but my community. What is my community? What flows through my community? It's a very interesting process. And you start to think, what do we need? My community is not going to produce gasoline. Right. But it could put in solar farms, which we have. You live on Whidbey Island yeah. outside Seattle. Yeah. So so we have some, uh, we have a solar farm. It powers one complex of buildings. You know, so you start to think, okay, energy, what do we need? Oh, maybe, maybe an electric, I got an electric bicycle, you know. And then oh, if I had a solar panel, electric bicycle, now I've done mobility. Okay, and so that's beginning to realize that dependency for everything on on a big old world I have no control over in the condition of overshoot and unsustainability, that's going to crash someday. So I'm going to make sure that my community, whether it's a town, you know, a county, a state, I'm going to do a resource flow analysis of that and see where we can move ourselves toward greater self-sufficiency. So I started working on food. And I asked a farmer friend, you know, we it's, I live on a semi-rural island. You know, there's really, really great farmland in the middle of the island. It's very, very rich. And I asked her whether we who live on this island, 65,000 people on this island, uh, could eat from the island if the ferry stopped running and our little bridge on the north went down. And she said, yeah, for two weeks in August. It's like I realized how food insecure we are. So that's why I did this, like, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to see, I'm going to devote myself 10, you know, for 30 days, I'm going to eat within 10 miles of my home and see what happens. How'd it go? I lost weight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I found it again. That wasn't a problem. (laughs) But, but I, it was fascinating. I mean, I have the book, Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, is about that adventure yeah, number one, I gave myself four exotics, things I was unwilling to live without. I actually could replace at least two of them. Lemons, oil, Please caffeine, say chocolate and wine. And salt. Oh. No, no. <laughs> there is wine on Whidbey Island. I would be fine, but I don't drink wine. So, you know, and, and actually we could, you know, I started doing an analysis of my food system. How does it work? And um, so I've supported all sorts of projects like growing grain. You know, if you can grow grain— then you can not only have, you know, some form of grain for a meal, but you can also make booze. Right. You know, you can grow hops. You know, you start to understand. I see it's not that hard to feed yourself from your region if you're willing to adapt. Like where I live, if, I, if I'm willing to 
have kale on a fairly daily basis. I'm not going to starve. Kale, potatoes, onions grow really well. We have tons of apples. We have legacy apple trees, you know, that just, you know, throw off their apples. So you start to analyze your food system and um, food becomes precious. Food becomes precious. And then I learned so much about the integration of of animals and landscapes. You know, the fertility cycles are so important. And now, you know, with our compartmentalizing minds, you know, we think, okay, we're going to solve climate change by nobody's going to eat any beef. But wait a second, you know, for people who are into regenerative agriculture, people understand that local and regional agriculture is how the world's going to feed itself. If you don't do this, we're, we're toast, literally. But no, you don't have any toast. So I, I learned a lot about livestock production and farming and 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 this whole idea now relocalization was my key then now the key is regeneration you know how do we we rebuild healthy systems once they were disassembled so years after you embarked on this years after you saw the problem to begin with in the minute or so we have left do you have hope for where we are today in the traditional sense of, am I looking into the future and I see something better than today? No. But that's just one form of hope. In the sense of the vitality of hope, like if I work hard, I can make, the, make a change, I actually don't have that either. What I have, though, is I understand that things are coming apart at the seams now that the consequences of our choices for so many years, that the fact that we did not stop this train, means that there is a lot of fracturing going on. But that means that there's another piece of us. It doesn't mean that, you know, everybody's going to come out of this alive, but it means entrepreneurship, compassion, maturity, some very important things about basically being resourceful not depending on resource says, but being resourceful, people are going to need to step up to the plate. And I have a feeling that at least a goodly amount will. And so being thrown back on your own resources, anybody who's lived a life and has had to reset the life because of a divorce or because of something, you know, a partner dies, you know that it's tough, but you become tougher. So in that sense of people waking up, to the facts of life and that there are limits and they're going to have to live within limits and that they can't be isolated. They have to work together. These are values I've worked for for 30 years. I am not relishing what's coming and I don't even rely on what I'm talking about, but we're going to adapt to a different world. That's absolutely true. And the sooner you, you embrace that and go like, this could be interesting, you know, what are the resource flows in my life? What do I actually need? And and how can I work together with others to meet and greet what's coming? That would be what I my answer to hope. Vicki Robin, you are amazing. I hope that all of my listeners who never read your money or your life will go out and pick it up or download it, whatever they have to do to get their hands on it. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And they can go to the website, uh, yourmoneyyourlife.com, and to get a free little um, summary of the book as a starter, their little free starter kit. Fabulous. Okay. We love free. <laughs> Thank you.
You're welcome. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Hermoney.com's Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio. Hey, Catherine. Hi. That was exciting for me. I was very, I don't know if you could tell, but very happy to have her here. Love her. And I could tell. I could tell you were happy. A little bit of a a geeking out moment for me. I have those when I meet these pioneers of personal finance who I just feel really paved the way for so much of the great work that came after it. And I, I love the fact that she has kept on doing it. Right. Particularly with authors, I geek out. Yeah. Because they were doing it before there was Instagram, you yep. know, and really to write a book, you have to really explain things in detail, which is the stuff I love. Yeah. No, fantastic. And and what she was saying about this never having enough mm-hmm. is something that really resonates, I think, even more today than when she wrote the book. Absolutely. Because you are surrounded every day in advertisements and on social media by people who have so much more than you or who pretend to have so much more than you. Right. And this American habit, and I think it is truly American. I don't think it's as ingrained in other countries of just comparing and measuring up. And if they've got that, then I want that. There's never an end. I'm struck every day as we walk into our offices by the line for the Rent the Runway drop-off box. Catherine and I, we work in a WeWork in Manhattan, and Rent the Runway has struck these deals with some WeWorks where they've got boxes where people who are subscribing to Rent the Runway Unlimited, which allows you a certain number of pieces at a time, can hand theirs back in so that then they can order more. It's out the door. The line is out the door. It's out the door. It's out the door to the point that I've begun giving it as instruction to people who are meeting with us at the WeWork. I'm saying, look for the epic line of women with bags of clothing, and then you'll know you're in the right spot. Exactly. And I love where this comes from. It comes from a place of not wanting to shop for disposable clothing, not wanting to blow your budget on clothing that you truly can't afford. The sharing economy, this is all a big part of it. But it also comes from not wanting to be photographed and put online wearing the same thing that you wore a couple of days ago. And that I don't get. Right. And then I wonder, for people who don't know about Rent the Runway, they just assume that these women have Dolce & Gabbana new outfits every week, right? Maybe. I don't think it's Dolce & Gabbana by the way, on Rent the Runway. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I I did Rent the Runway Unlimited for a little while, and I may go back and do it again because it's really fun, and it did save me a lot of money not shopping. They're more mid-tier labels. So, okay. you know, more Diane von Furstenberg, not $3,000 dresses, $300 dresses. Well, clearly I've never done it. But it is interesting because were you to try to purchase that many new clothes that you owned, yeah, it would be... A crazy amount of money. Crazy. Crazy. Anyway, lots and lots of good lessons in what Vicki Robin had to say. I'm looking forward. I've got a trip out to Seattle coming up, and I'm going to take her up on her offer to come visit her on Whitby Island. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, very excited. What do we have in mailbag today? 
Today, our first question comes to us from Deb, who writes, I am an avid fan of your show and have learned so much about how to manage my personal and family finances, as well as all the other great life learnings your team puts out there. I started working on helping my oldest develop his path to financial independence with a debit card and an allowance at 14. As soon as he turned 18, he got a credit card from his bank in just his name. After six months, he had a credit score. He just moved off campus and he put his internet bill in his name, which required a credit score, so that felt like a win. But here is where we are stuck. He's now 19. His credit score is good at 722, but I'm confused as to how he can continue increasing it. He tried applying for a second credit card but was denied, and that credit inquiry actually lowered his score. I would love ideas for how to build credit history and credit scores for young people. What are other financial independence practices that I should be teaching my teenagers? We are on the same path with our 15- and 16-year-old daughters, but maybe I am missing something. Keep on spreading the knowledge. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Deb. I love this question. I think you're doing everything right. Here's where I would push pause for just a second. Credit score of 722 for an 18-year-old is fine. It is good. It may not be burgeoning on excellent, but it will get there as long as he uses the one credit card that he has, doesn't go over 30% in his utilization of that card. So if he's got a $1,000 credit limit, he should charge no more than $300 at any point. And if he's getting to that level, go ahead and just pay the bill or ask for an increase in the credit limit on that card and then pay the bill on time. And that's all he has to do. His credit history will build on that single card. I worry that if he gets an additional card, although you have clearly raised him to be a very responsible human being, it may become more of a temptation to spend. And and we really don't want to see that. The other thing that you could do, but I don't think it's necessary, is to encourage him to become an authorized user on one of your cards. That's typically a solution that we recommend for parents whose kids have absolutely no credit in their own name. Yours already does, so I probably wouldn't go down that road. I think it's just a matter of being a little bit patient. When he gets out of school and rents an apartment, maybe buys a car, all of those things will become long-term parts of his history, and he'll continue to build and increase that score. And as far as your daughters, I think you're on the right path. The only thing that I would mention is that as your kids get older, with the debit card and with the allowance, you want to make sure that they're being asked to take on more responsibility for the monthly expenses that they are required to cover. So the allowance can go up, the expenses that they have to cover can also go up, but the level of responsibility goes up as well. And the hope is that when they head off to college, you can do it without worrying that they're going to go through a semester's worth of money in a couple of weeks. Great advice. Thank you. Our next question is from an anonymous Midwest listener. So hello to the Midwest. She writes, I was recently introduced to your podcast via one of my coworkers. I binge listen to your episodes and truly enjoy them. I feel I have learned so much. I currently work for a firm that does not offer a 401k. It is a small company with fewer than 50 people, and the owners are not interested in offering a plan to the employees. Some of us are approaching the max limit for the IRA deduction. 
I was interested in knowing what is a good way to save for tax-deductible or pre-tax contributions, which in turn put us in a lower tax bracket. I've done research but couldn't really find anything. Great question. And there are so many people in this boat because a lot of small employers don't offer 401ks. It's, it's an expensive benefit to put on their menu in some cases. A lot of people work for themselves and don't have this option. So maxing out an IRA is absolutely your first move. I would then look at your health insurance. If you have a high deductible health insurance plan, you may be eligible to make a contribution into a health savings account. The limit that singles can put in for this year is $3,550. For a family, it's $7,100. But that money can then be used to pay for health care in real time, which means if you put it in in pre-tax dollars, you take it out without paying any additional taxes on it, you're essentially saving about 25% on the cost of any health care expenditure that you use it for, but you don't have to use it in the year that you contribute it. You can allow it to grow, you can invest it like money in a 401k, And it can, over the years, become a very powerful supplemental retirement account. The deal on distributions is as long as you use the money for health care expenses, you never owe any additional taxes on them. In retirement, if you use the money for things other than health care, it's treated just like a 401k distribution, meaning you're going to pay income taxes on that money, but you won't owe any penalties. So I would absolutely look at that. And then if you have additional money that you are able to put away, just do it. Don't worry about the tax deduction. Put that money in a brokerage firm, invest it in a way that lines up with your risk tolerance and your goals, and you're going to be good to go. Fantastic. Last question comes from Corinne. She writes, I am in love with the podcast, and as a 22-year-old college graduate, it has helped me tremendously to gain footing with my finances before stepping out into the real world. Thank you. My question is about what to do with the remaining balance in my 529 college savings account. After graduating, I'll have about $25,000 remaining in the account. My grandparents set me up with this college money, and it has been the biggest blessing in my life and something I would like to pass to my own kids. I'm graduating debt-free, and because my 529 has benefited me so much, I want to let the remaining money continue to grow for my children. How do I go about doing this? Is it even possible to set up an account for kids I don't have yet? Again, our listeners are just so smart, right? They are I mean, incredibly impressive. They're so impressive. impressive and so smart. You don't have to do a thing. You can just... Keep the money in your own name, in your own account. Continue to let it grow. Should you decide that you want to go to grad school, you're able to use it. But the deal with 529 money is that you can transfer the money in the account to the account of anybody else in your family in any given year. So when those kids exist, then you can go ahead and transfer money into their accounts once you've established those accounts. The one thing that I would do is look at how the money is being invested right now. As we near any goal, we generally get more conservative with our investment strategy. So in the 529s that I had for my kids, 
I was really, really aggressive with the money when they were babies. In fact, all the way through elementary school. When they were in middle school, I moved it to a more moderately aggressive portfolio. And by the time they were in high school, I got conservative. Because you now think this money is for kids who've not even been born yet, you can take more risk. So I would absolutely take a look at that. And I think that your grandparents would be really, really happy with that decision, that their gift that they made for you could fund education for generations to come. That's a really, really powerful thing. That's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. In today's Thrive, in the fight against debt, aren't we all looking for solutions that are easy to implement and accessible to all? Well, it turns out such a thing not only exists, it's also grossly underused, according to the folks at Bankrate. I'm talking about balance transfer credit cards, which allow you to move your existing high interest rate credit card debt to a new card with a 0% introductory rate that can last for 18 months or longer. Essentially, once you make the switch, your goal should be to pay down your debt as quickly as possible before the 0% rate expires. Yes, there are fees associated with most balance transfers, usually about 3 to 5% of the debt that you're transferring. But if you're paying down a large balance, this can be one way to save thousands of dollars. Using today's average credit card balance of about $6,000, Bankrate calculated that users could save as much as $1,000 with a balance transfer card over the course of 18 months. But if your balance is higher than that and you use your 18 months to aggressively pay down your debt, then you stand to save much, much more. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this show today. Thank you so much to Vicki Robin for stopping by. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll sit down with another great guest, and we'll talk soon.